Hello, and welcome to another edition of Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Sue Sutter, managing editor Bridget Silverman, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is January 19th, 2024. We Maybe digging out from another snowfall here in the Washington, D.C. area, but the FDA and pharma news continues to roll in. First up is FDA advisory committee meetings, or more precisely, the lack of them. The first new drug application, ADCOM, for 2024 was announced officially today in the Federal Register, but none have been held for more than two months, and the last one was in mid-November. This reverses the agency's advisory committee approach from last year when 19 ADCOMs were held in the first half of the year, only to be followed by six in the second half. Some of this ad advisory committee vacation may be because of the threat of a government shutdown. While scheduled meetings can go on as usual, new meetings cannot be put on the calendar. Luckily for the FDA, Congress voted to avert the shutdown last night. But our Mike McCann of Prevision Policy wrote in a story for the pink sheet that the open calendar also could mean that the ongoing review of advisory committee policies has not spawned any change in routines as of yet. So I know the FDA will tell tell us that a lot of this is dependent on the applications that are in-house, but I'm curious what you all see in this kind of lack of an advisory committee schedule, at least so far. Well, it's hard to... To know what to make of it, yes, a lot of it is application dependent. Certainly, um, Rob Califf has opined on the fact that he would like to see fewer, um, quote, gladiator votes on product-specific applications at advisory committees. Um, I don't know if that is impacting decisions on whether or not to, to bring specific applications before committees, we know of at least two products uh, sponsors have announced that the FDA has said it will convene an advisory committee. So I think for those, it's just a matter of time waiting for them to be scheduled. So it's really, it's an odd situation. It was very odd to go through December without any advisory committees. That's usually a very heavy month for, for adcoms. So it's really hard to know what to make of the situation right now. And the um, the meeting that was announced today, it's it's technically a drug. It's not your sort of traditional drug. It's a fluorescent imaging agent that is part of a drug device combination. And it's used for detection of residual breast cancer tissue after a lumpectomy. And the, the adcom that's going to be considering this on March 5th is the medical imaging ad, the medical imaging drugs adcom, which again is not one of your sort of more high profile panels. Um, this group met in August to discuss um, pet imaging drugs, but prior to that, it had not met since 2020. So, <laughs> you know, we're not exactly talking about ODAC here. There are a couple of uh, drugs out there where the FDA uh, or where the uh, companies have said that um, FDA said an advisory committee review was planned, but nothing has been actually put on the schedule yet. Um, off the top of my head, there's um, aramoclamol, which is back under under um, Zevra, a new new sponsor for it, and um, Imitelstat from Giron. Um, both of those have mid-2024 uh, goal dates. 
There's also a product, a CAR-T product from Bristol-Myers Squibb and 270 Bio that is going for um, an expanded indication in multiple myeloma. That user fee goal date had been in December, but Bristol-Myers Squibb had uh, announced, I believe, in November that FDA was going to miss that user fee goal date and was going to be convening an adcom. I mean, how, how much of this is the possibility that the FDA just doesn't feel like they need the advice that the from the committee? I mean, it's not to say the committee is, you know, not useful. They are. But, you know, the point, I mean, you know, the technical definition and FDA talks about likes to talk about this is we are in, we're supposed to be getting outside advice from expertise, experts in the field when we need it. So, I mean, is it possible that they're just in a run here where they can't think of any good questions to convene the convene the committees? I mean, certainly when they when they do not convene a committee for an NME, uh, they will say in the approval letter we didn't convene it because there were no controversial issues or issues on which we needed outside advice. So, yeah, it may just be the run of the applications. It may have been, as you pointed out, Derek, you know, concerns about government funding and and scheduling of these sorts of things. If they were already scheduled, they could continue during a shutdown. But I think that's probably not an ideal situation given the um, all the people involved <laughs> at FDA in terms of convening an advisory committee, even if it's virtual. So we'll have to see. I think we're going to get a run of announcements soon. <laughs> uh, don't hold me to that in terms of when that would be. I mean, they do tend to to publish them in bunches. I've noticed over the years. So here, here's a here's a what uh, controversial statement. They're holding back because they want to start having them in person again, and they want to make sure that they can do that and have the room. The great room available at FDA's White Oak campus. Well, that would be interesting. <laughs> what, is it, what, is, what what else is it being hmm. used for? <laughs> it's being used I, for the you, FDA team at advisory committees, but not for everybody else. <laughs> I, I was just, I, I, you know, I I'm not sure I agree that FDA is eager to bring the advisory committees back to campus, but I definitely don't agree that White Oak, that White Oak Great Room is, you know, being, you know, it used for something else. Not that I have any knowledge. I just can't imagine, you know, that's a um, popular hangout these days. Well, I, I think I they have a lot of internal meetings in there. In yeah, they have a lot of internal meetings in there just because it's the biggest room. Like if you want to have like a division-wide you know, meeting or something. I mean, I'm just making sure. that up. But I mean, they have they have workshops with people. I mean, the last time I was there, um, which was like in the fall, I think it was. I mean, they had it was subdivided into three, and they had workshops for in, you know internal workshops in the other two, or at least one of the other spaces. So, you know, I mean, I think that's one of the reasons they they use it a lot for for that kind of thing. Uh, how much do we think the effort to rethink advisory committees might be impacting the schedule. It seems uh, odd to me that they would be telling uh, divisions not to schedule things uh, because they hadn't figured out sort of what the new advisory committee uh, approach was going to be. But uh, it does seem to sort of coincide with this idea that they're kind of uh, rethinking what uh, advisory committees can be. And uh, maybe sort of everyone's a little shy as we're kind of to uh, do it the old way. So no one's actually doing it uh, in any way yet. 
Yeah, I think that may be um, that may be a, a reasonable explanation, Matt. I think maybe they've been told, you know, really consider whether or not you need an ad com for this particular product. Patricia Cavazzoni, the Cedar director, said last year they're actually writing policy on how to, you know, I mean, it was the whole like where we might use more temporary members of committees and, you know, we're trying to focus on more scientific questions and make sure the questions are consistently written and things like that. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if, you know, everyone's still digesting how they want it done now and it might be taking a little longer. People are rethinking, like you said, you know, do we need, you know, is this the correct question for an advisory committee now under this new, you know, the new way of thinking? I, w I was going to say that um, part of why they seem to want to re rethink when and how they hold advisory committees is because I think they have not liked the public reaction when FDA and the advisory committees, you know, don't agree or the advisory committee doesn't go the way FDA seems like it would have preferred it to go. And then, you know, they have to make a decision that seems in contrast to that. So I wonder if some of why they're not holding as many advisory committees is just more for for that reason, right? That that they're they're thinking very carefully about how what what position a, a the possible outcomes of an adcom could put them in. Maybe that's a little too cynical, but <laughs> I I wouldn't put it past them. <laughs> um, on that sort of idea, uh, there's um, a couple of, of pending applications where uh, I. Uh, I'm, I'm very interested to see if it, they do end up going before an advisory committee. Um, there's Minerva Neurosciences Roluperidone, which was uh, refused to file um, in 2022 and is back. Um, and that's for uh, schizophrenia. And um, just FDA has had a lot of, of, of issues with that application, obviously. Um, and then uh, the, the more exciting one would be the um, MDMA. Um, therapy um but uh from from maps which is the uh taking basically a a, 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 a what, what has been a drug of abuse and uh saying if you 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 uh give give this with um uh intensive structured therapy uh you know it it, it works and uh that i think is going to be something that they really have issues with um, at FDA. I, I would guess, uh, how do you run a trial for something where it isn't much of a process as it is a, a product? So I'm betting that one goes before. Medomethetamine for post-traumatic stress disorder. One thing that came up online um, this week, I just happened to see it, uh, was Someone was asking why they don't publish the tentative schedule of advisory committees anymore. They haven't done that for, I can't remember the last time I saw one. But, I mean, I, I don't know how helpful that was. Um, you know, I mean, I, I remember seeing it and and people starting to jump to conclusions like they would see, you know, for example, they would see an ODAC meeting and be like, oh, that's when this one's going, this application's going to be you know, considered so we can extrapolate, you know, when we think, you know, we could get, you know, a decision and and so forth. I mean, I mean, do you all think that would be, I mean, if they went back to doing that again and just saying like, hey, we expect to have X number of meetings this year or the, you know, meetings, you know, this quarter or this quarter or that quarter or whatever. I mean, do you, do you think that's helpful or is that just kind of 
you know, just kind of creating a lot of allowing for a lot more speculation. I do think that that that's what was happening when they published those lists of tentative meeting dates. I know certainly we we looked at that and we jumped at it and tried to match up user fee dates um, with estimated meeting dates. So um, I can understand why maybe FDA got rid of that. I found them helpful, um, but I can understand why FDA and maybe sponsors didn't necessarily um, like those dates published. And, you know, it's it's never a given that that it's it's often not a given that an advisory committee meeting is going to be needed. So you could see how sort of. a stock might react to the fact that, oh, the peripheral and central nervous system committee is going to be meeting in April and -and so-and-so's drug user fee date is in June. So, you know, you can try to put two and two together there. Um, I think it would be helpful if FDA, yeah, put out estimates on maybe the number of times it expects the PCNS meeting to meet in 2024 or ODAC or that sort of thing, you know, but perhaps with less specificity in terms of the actual um, dates or months of the meetings. Yeah, that would be something, you know, too, like if you noticed that a certain committee was not expected to meet, you know, in the year and you knew there was a, you know, this application, that application was coming. I mean, that could be telling as well, I would assume. Right, right. And it, it's a, this is an interesting subject, and you know, one for us wonky people will be will be watching closely as we celebrate the the, the first you know non imaging drug advisory committee scheduled scheduled um, in 2024. But um, you know, something to definitely keep an eye on for you know for um, industry folks as well. Next, we're going to discuss drug importation and the program the FDA just approved for the state of Florida. Sarah, you looked into CMS's role in this process? Right. So um, CMS um, has weighed in um, back when this um, FDA drug importation pathway was sort of first outlined in the Trump administration. CMS also weighed in on um, how this might work for Medicaid, particularly given the Medicaid drug rebate program and Medicaid best price. and um, Essentially, what CMS said is that, you know, drugs um, imported by a state or a like tribe under these what people call SIPs, these like state drug importation programs would not count as covered drugs for the purposes of the Medicaid drug rebate program, essentially because they're not FDA approved. Right. Um, NDAs or, you know, ANDAs or whatnot. And that's sort of the way the. Um, law around Medicaid was written. Um, and so what that means is that, um, you know, states um, in return for having open formularies get really steep discounts on drugs um, for Medicaid. Um, and so the question then becomes, is a state really going to be able to get a better discount for Medicaid from importing drugs than um, through, you know, the normal Medicaid drug rebate program? And I think people are skeptical. And Medicaid's probably where for states, particularly on like the state government's, you know, budget side, right, the, there could, if would be the most attractive part to import for them, right? Like um, that's the program for states where they're really spending a lot of their budget, you know, helping pay for drugs. 
The other thing that's interesting for pharma because of this is that not only would it maybe not be so attractive to state for states to import drugs for the Medicaid program, but also that if a state does import a drug, regardless of whether they're sort of using it for Medicaid or not, um, that doesn't become a price point that impacts Medicaid best price. So um, again, Medicaid either gets um, fairly steep percentage percentage of rebates, varies depending whether you're brand or generic, um, or sort of the best price given to other programs on the U.S. market with like a few exceptions, like the VA price is not, um, doesn't get factored into best price. So um, that means that say <clears throat> Florida eventually does import, you know, some drug from Canada and gets like some crazy good deal on it somehow, which, you know, again, we could talk about how there's a lot of skepticism about how much this is really going to work or save, but say they did that, that price even if it was really low for Florida, is not going to trigger um, pharma to have to offer that price to Medicaid programs throughout the rest of the country. So that, that I mean, that's a pretty big protection for the drug industry. But again, overall, I think the way um, CMS sort of interpreted things um, back when these programs were first designed just kind of adds another layer of, you know, is it really attractive to import drugs and will it really lead to savings or is this just sort of a, a good political slogan that, you know, sounds good to people but probably isn't going to um, make a big difference in terms of drug pricing and affordability in reality. Sorry, I was going to say, like, whenever we talk about this, I, I always like to say at the top that Canada has indicated multiple times they are not interested in this they are they don't want florida buying drugs from them especially if they could create like shortages and stuff they said that i think they even said they were going to fight this now so keep all that right. in the back so, of your mind as we're talking about this <laughs> they canada actually passed i'm not sure if it was law or regulation or whatever but the government took official steps <laughs> i'm gonna caveat with that because i don't remember exactly um, again, this is, I think, back in 2020 when this first came up, that was to basically prevent drugs from leaving the country for like U.S. importation or importation um, to other countries if, you know, there was a risk of shortage or so forth in Canada. So they've already taken like proactive steps. Um, obviously, um, on the other side of this, you have pharma companies who could, when they're, you know, striking deals with Canada to provide their drugs, you know, can put things into their contracts to, you know, try and prevent the drug that they're selling to Canada from, you know, getting back into the U.S. So there's, I mean, beyond the, uh, you know, what's going to happen on the kind of like the U.S. side of the border with, you know, farmers likely going to file lawsuits, other parties may file lawsuits, and there, there's just a lot of ways for this to be stymied and, you know, um, I, again, I think that the other thing people always have to be reminded of when we talk about this is like, I think Canada has like the population of California or something like that, you know, so their their drugs, their typical drug supply is, is very different than the drug supply for the U.S. And that I mean, that's part of why they get so concerned um, because the U.S. is so much more populous. But right, it's not like companies are producing enough drug for Canada that the U.S. could take a um a decent chunk out of it but i mean again there, there's just all these other layers of you know the program created under the trump administration was basically i think designed to like 
throw a bone at Trump and, you know, the populists who really wanted to make um, importation a reality in the U.S., which has included lots of Republicans and Democrats over the years. But they did it in such a way that was, you know, they said, well, we have to be able to ensure safety. And by the time you go through all the hoops to um, ensure the safety, it's it's really not clear, again, that you're going to be left with any savings or, you know, that it's going to make a lot of sense. So I think in many ways it was sort of like deliberately designed to be possible, but not um, financially attractive and practical. <laughs> yeah, it does not seem like uh, any of the entities involved in uh, implementing this really want it to uh, happen. It's, uh, I think, a, a positive headline for uh, advocates that uh, FDA had authorized the first uh, state importation uh, uh, program, but uh, the, there are still many safety uh, and inspection hoops that uh, Florida has to jump through before uh, FDA will even let it import any drugs. And then, uh, as you've outlined uh, uh, carefully there, uh, Sarah, whether or not that actually makes financial sense for Florida to try and do is uh, is still up in the air uh, as well. So, uh, you know, it's, it's not great news for, uh, for pharma that uh, um, this program exists, and now that the first one has been uh, um, given the initial thumbs up, but uh, in terms of uh, decimating the bottom line because of uh, you know Canadian price controls or uh, or what have you, that doesn't seem to be uh, um, close to happening for uh, a variety of reasons that uh, um, FDA, CMS, and uh, Canada are all uh, working against it uh, still to a uh, to a large degree. So uh, it's probably uh, not going to uh, um, be a uh, a real uh, um, uh, 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 detriment to uh, pharma bottom line anytime soon. Right, as you sort of um, suggested, Matt. You know, FDA approved Florida's sort of program in theory. Right, said like, okay, you have a plan that seems like it will save money and be safe, but they didn't. They still have to clear on what it seems like a drug by drug basis, individual products for import, and none of that has happened yet. And that is gonna be um, probably a big lift. Um, so, you know, right, it's not like Florida is starting to bring in anything into their country yet, um, or into their state yet. And, you know, even the savings Florida has outlined, it's like um, around $200 million for the first two years of the program. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to snuff at two hundred million dollars. You gave me two hundred million dollars. I'd be pretty happy. <laughs> you might not hear me on the podcast anymore. But, um, <laughs> you know, for, for, for a state budget, um, th that's not a significant amount of money. Their Medicaid program, for example, spends, you know, well over a billion dollars with a B each year on drugs. Um, so, you know, We'll see what happens, but yeah, I think um, as many people have said for a long time, this is sort of a it, it's it's a nice political kind of victory or populist idea, but it, it's certainly not the U.S. solution to you know high drug prices if you feel like drug prices are too high. Um, but right, it's it's sort of reflective that for pharma, you know. People still are really interested in figuring out ways to, you know, lower drug pricing. And that comes from all sides of the aisle. And they're going to have to keep dealing with this um, probably, who knows, probably forever in the U.S. Um, the other thing I think I just wanted to flag since, you know, we've I've been bringing up so much of the Trump administration's, you know, role in really laying out this 
um, the program Florida is going to use is that um, just so you know, remind everybody that HHS secretary at the time who kind of helped, you know, spearhead this was Alex Azar. Um, and many people think of him as, um, you know, the former Eli Lilly, you know, pharma executive. But the interesting thing now, um, Kaiser um, KFF Health News reported earlier this week that um, Alex Azar is actually um, now chairman of the board of the um, logistics company, uh, Life Science Logistics, that Florida is actually basically contracted with to help manage its Canadian drug importation program. So that's kind of interesting for revolving door people and to see Azar now on like that side of the um, <laughs> the field, you know, sort of in opposition in many ways to um, the companies, you know, he, he used to work for and with. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that impacts it at all. The well, other thing we certainly know all the uh, the roadblocks uh, he helped uh, um, set up to how to perhaps he knows how to uh, how to avoid them. The other thing that's always interesting, Sarah, in your story was that there there are a whole lot of consumer protections that don't that don't trigger if you're taking imported drugs through this program, like drug drug interaction type of flags for the you know for the for the pharmacists or the physicians or whoever would forget that i mean i i, I would i i can't imagine what would the kind of backlash that would occur if something like that happened and it turned out that this was a drug imported from canada and there was no you know that 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 whatever flag or whatever it was in the computer didn't pop up because of that Right. There's just different um, protections kind of built in, like to the Medicaid program that this was in Medicaid. But I think like just again, like these sort of like IT um, computer system, all these supply chain issues are going to be challenging. And like another thing I raised in that regard is like, you know, um, we already have these issues where, you know, pharma, I think, worries a lot about whether, you know, you can't get like dupe Applicative discounts, so like a 340B drug, you can also get the Medicaid, the um, Medicaid rebates for, you know, people are all, all already worried about how IRA drug price negotiation in 340B and, you know, all these other programs are going to intersect and um, figuring out like how to the state and, you know, pharmacies and stuff, figuring out how to track that to make sure you're like complying with law. So how do you make sure the drug you're bringing in from Canada that's not supposed to get Medicaid rebates and that pharma doesn't owe you those for like doesn't get you know billed for that um so again those are like not the like drug you know quality side sort of logistics but the sort of like payers type you know supply chain logistics are probably going to be challenging to figure out how to implement as well yeah it seems the this story just keeps getting more and more interesting twists that get added onto it as people look into it closer. <laughs> so thanks, Sarah. Finally, we're going to take a look at the FDA's 2023 performance. Bridget, you looked into the number of user fee goals that the agency missed, and it was pretty high. Uh, yeah, it was, Derek. Um, you know, we every year look at uh, the the pool of uh, new molecular entities and novel biologics that are approved uh, by by FDA. Um, and, you know, 2023 was was a fantastic year in terms of sheer number there, you know, 72 novel agents approved, which is a, a big jump. Um, 
But uh, when you start looking at it, um, the uh, on, on some of the metrics, um, it was uh, a, a bit of an outlier in a sort of backsliding way. Um, you know, when when the Prescription Drug User Fee Act uh, came came into being back back uh, in the last century, um, missing user fee goals were a big deal. And in fact, I I, I believe that the uh, User Fee Act uh, had the has has targets where you know FDA meets ninety percent of these these goal dates um, for ninety percent of applications, uh, and and for a long time, you know, that was a a a, a challenge. Um, but uh, in the last uh, 15 years or so, um, FDA has really gotten very, very good at meeting user fee goal dates uh, until 2023. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, so uh, this year, um, among the, the 72 approved, there were uh, seven different, um, there's six products with missed, missed goal dates at CEDAR and uh, one at uh, the Center for Biologics, which uh, at, at, at CEDAR, there was more, there were more missed goal dates among this year's approval class um, than there had been for about the last 10 years combined. You know, there, there, there's normally one or zero. So uh, that, that was a really big difference. So we looked closer at that um, and discovered that there are really two things going on. Um, the first was, uh, of course, um, COVID, which uh, affected everybody in, in every way. COVID, uh, one of the big problems uh, or, or trends, I guess, that um, COVID complicated was the uh, emergence of Chinese uh, biotech companies um, who had developed uh, cancer drugs and were now trying to break into the U.S. market. Um, and so they have uh, facilities that the United States has not previously inspected. So there's limited use of uh, remote review of records, um, which is one of the things FDA tried to do during the pandemic when they couldn't be traveling. Um, so there's sort of been this, this sort of hangover uh, from the pandemic of these um, uh, Chinese inspections, especially because uh, China had such strict travel restrictions much longer than than much of the world. Um, so uh, this year, uh, there were three um, products that were uh, 2022 user-free gold dates that uh, were held up by inspections in China that were 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 finally approved. Um, so uh, that that was definitely a sign of of movement there. Um, uh, interestingly, I think uh, there's there's still a couple more that are are pending that I'm not quite sure if they're even still uh, actively being pursued. Um, there's uh, the Beijing uh, Novartis um, Tislolizumab uh, PD-1 inhibitor, um, which is no longer uh, Novartis backed out in September of 2023, so it's just Beijing's now. That one uh, is is had a 22 goal date for um, previously treated esophageal squamous cell carcinoma. Uh, we know that a manufacturing inspection was completed uh, over the summer of 2023, um, but that still has not uh, had any action uh, public. It's not approved, and nobody's announced a complete response letter. Beijing, interestingly, is continuing to pursue the. Uh, the product with another um, application, 
where they, they submitted for first line um, esophageal cancer as in, in mid-2023. Um, and ultimately, I think that might subsume the, the second line claim. If you, know, if you get the first line indication, you can stand pat. Um, I think a similar thing might be going on with the Kizos uh, penpulumab, um, which uh, had, is under the, um, was under the real-time oncology review program, um, which uh, usually you know, gets, gets, means you're getting a lot of, of regulatory attention there. Um, but uh, we know that there were inspection difficulties um, and the product is no longer listed on their site as a global program. Um, but they do have a first line uh, phase three trial going on that has some US sites. Um, so, you know, some of these things uh, might be um, hopscotching over some of the FDA's issues with uh, sort of the original applications for later lines of therapy that were based on Chinese data with um, programs in earlier lines of therapy that have US sites and have a better chance of, of getting through. The uh, other reason that you saw ex missed, missed goal dates that was, was a big thing was safety, and that is a perpetual uh, issue. Um, in 2022, FDA uh, missed one user fee goal date uh, for, for Pfizer's Sabinco, and that was because they were working out a response to JAK uh, inhibitor class-wide safety concerns. Um, so uh, this year, um, UCB is Vimzelsk, which was uh, for psoriasis, missed, missed uh, actually two gold dates. It was uh, perhaps the unluckiest product of the year, uh, approvals class, um, because uh, first it um, its Belgium facility couldn't be inspected uh, because of the pandemic. They got a complete response letter. Um, then uh, just as they were approaching their uh, user fee gold date for the second review cycle, FDA identified a new signal of safety signal of suicidal ideation and behavior in some of the uh, open label extension data that had been submitted as part of the resubmission. Um, and uh, FDA again did a very thorough um, you know, investigation of the signal. They took it up to the REMS Oversight Committee, uh, which, which deals with Safety policy, um, and then they went to the FDA, to the Cedar um, Medical Policy and Program Review Council. Ultimately, that they decided that uh, you know this could be handling handled with um, labeling and uh, patient and provider education. Um, but it shows uh, how when there is a security or a, a safety issue, um, FDA, you know that that is more important to them than meeting meeting goal dates. You know, over at Zebra, the one pro the one product that missed the goal date was um Sarepta's uh gene therapy uh elevidith in uh, Duchenne muscular dystrophy. Uh Sarepta in Duchenne muscular dystrophy has a history of controversial reviews with FDA. Um this was uh was also one of them um where uh, ultimately the CBER director uh, overrode the review team's recommendation against approval, uh, but they did do an age-restricted one. Um, FDA, but all the, the labeling negotiations um, around all of this debate uh, ended up pushing the uh, approval past the review date. 
you know, overall, the uh, the access time that was added um, past user fee goal dates for, for all of the seven um, was was close to, to eight months, which, uh, you know, these are not just not insignificant in most part uh, delays. Um, while the, the safety is a perpetual issue, um, hopefully these COVID inspection problems will be increasingly in the past. That's what I was going to ask, because during the I mean, during the pandemic, I don't think I mean, we didn't see this many, you know, missed dates when they actually couldn't travel. And, you know, you if you did travel, you had to sit in quarantine for two weeks and then you had to sit in quarantine when you came home and all this other stuff. So I'm wondering if is it possible this is maybe like a lagging indicator and, you know, we're going to see some more of this going forward just because they they're now getting around to doing some of these inspections again and they're still running into trouble yeah i you know that that these sort of didn't show up in the uh you know earlier during the pandemic because they weren't approved they were they were sitting sitting and waiting um you know that it's, it's definitely a a lagging indicator um you know there there's still i think probably going to be a lot of not a lot but there are a few products out there where um there are probably inspection issues that they need to to address and get reinspected, and all of that takes time. Bridget, tying this into our initial conversation on the dearth of advisory committees, there are at least two user fee dates that we know of that are being missed pending advisory committees. This this Lumisite um, imaging product that is going before mm-hmm. the medical imaging drugs ad come on March 5th, uh, they were under a priority review, and we had their user fee date as being in November. So clearly, yeah. that's going to be missed. Even if there were a three-month extension, um, that would be missed if there's not an ad com until March 5th. And then Bristol-Myers Squibb has previously announced that FDA was going to miss the user fee date for the extension of the multiple myeloma indication for the CAR-T um, abecma. Uh, that original user fee date was in December, and the company said that there was going to be an adcom, and we've not seen a date yet for that adcom. So there are at least right there two that we know of um, that yep. are going to be missed. Yes, absolutely. Are are adcoms the new Ford inspections? I guess is the. Uh, is the- <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, and that's going to go against their 2023 numbers right because those user fee dates were in 2023 depending I guess. I don't on, know how you calculate on, it <laughs> on how you calculate you know i'm i'm yeah. looking you know for, for this analysis i'm just looking at what was approved in 2023 okay um there there could be more out there certainly um you know especially uh you know sort of with the the, the products coming out of of china where um you know these are not companies with with uh U.S. Um, media presence or, or you know, press affairs offices. Is it possible that our expectations are a little too high? I mean, 100 percent, you know, I mean, realistically, you know, just randomness will tell you that you're going to miss a goal date every now and then just because because of, like you said, inspection issue or you know, stuff doesn't come in at the right time. Somebody gets sick and is gone for a week that has to sign off on the review or, you know, I mean, you could think of a hundred reasons why you'd miss one. Um, I mean, 
I, I know I don't want it to sound like that. You know, we you know we need to give Cedar some some grace here, but you know, we, is a is a realistic expectation that they make if they at least act on every single application within the whatever it is the eight month or the ten month um, goal. I think that um, the, uh, the the statutory goals, which is I, I believe are are meeting ninety percent of yeah ninety percent yeah um, you know sort of shows that that when when the uh, system was set up it was envisioned that there would be some some give there um, I think what's really remarkable is how many years that they just meet them all and of course you know people must have gotten sick and computers must have crashed and uh, but. FDA got really, really good at doing things within the the time frame. Um, now you do see a lot more, not a lot. You do see a rising trend, um, and and we've written about this elsewhere, of um, user fee goal date extensions, where uh, there's a you know three month extension um, to the goal date, but there's limited situations where that can be done. Um, you have to have new information and uh, FDA considers it a major amendment and you can only do it once per cycle. So, uh, you know, FDA does, does, does sometimes, you know, extend um, the review that way. I mean, one, one thing the generic side decided to do was create what's called eminent approvals, where if they think they can, they can finish within 60 days after the goal date, they'll blow it on purpose. And just keep going because the whole, you know, the the sending a complete response and starting the whole th- process over again would take a lot more time than just saying, okay, the metric here is not as important as finishing this application, getting it out the door. You know, I mean, I want you wonder if maybe O and D is kind of jealous of that and was, maybe would create something. Although, like you said, that you know, a lot of these delays were not you know, two months, they were a lot longer than that. Um, the longer delays, uh, the really long delays were were for the um, manufacturing inspections. Um, you know, with with safety stuff, you definitely see, um, I think, more uh, speed <laughs> being, being, being acted. Um, the delays are, are shorter. Well, we'll have to see if FDA can return to perfect next year. But uh, thanks, Bridget. Well, that's all for today. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this and other podcasts on the Sightline channel in Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, TuneIn, and Spotify Podcasts, as well as via smart speakers if they have been set up as your default podcast provider. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Sue Sutter, Bridget Silverman, and Nielsen Hobbs. Take care, and we'll see you next time. 